This week on the show, we do an in-memoriam of the NTP author, the original one. We also cover the FreeBSD status report of the fourth quarter of 2023. Then we have a migration how-to for a FreeBSD Beehive virtual machine to OmniOS. Uh, Celine lets us know that she has or will be running an AI-free blog. Hard disk LEDs and noisy machines is an interesting article, as well as SSH-based comment system for a website. And also we cover the latest, or hopefully by this time, be the final candidate NetBSD 10 RC4 is available. And people should check everything out in this episode of BSD now. BSD Now, episode 548, NTP in memoriam, recorded on the 21st of February 2024. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. We have a well-stuffed uh, episode, I would almost say. Um, yeah, there's a, fair, there's a fair bit in there tonight, uh, today. Well, should I say this morning? It's the 22nd for me anyway. But Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For you, yeah. That's why and it's interesting. Like, we're in between time zones. Like, Jason is always in the future and I'm in the past. So maybe Jason should do the what date it is. Oh, no, that'll confuse everyone, I think. Or, sh- or should we say it's the twenty-first and a half, or something? Mm, yes, I suppose it is, that, that would be more accurate, I guess. Yeah, and it fits the NTP synchronization bits that we were going to have later in the episode. And uh, yeah, uh, I would like to synchronize people a little bit on uh, things that I'm I've been doing, or I will be doing in March and April, in case they want to meet me, especially in uh, events that I'm going to. Uh, particularly in Germany, well, that's our German audience or the people willing to travel. So I will be giving a talk at the uh, Linux Tagel, the Linux Days at, in Chemnitz, uh, where I've been a number of times already. And I will be giving a introductory tutorial uh, for people who have never used Vim before and want to be, you know, productive with it. And we don't just do, yeah, insert mode, yeah, colon wq and stuff uh, we also do a couple of interesting other things and uh that will be part of that show maybe there's some bsd folks there that i can uh meet and there's general talks there that i will also attend what then, what, what what is the general theme for that conference uh that's that's linux uh everything linux from beginners uh to experts cloud of course embedded ai it's everywhere so they have multiple parallel tracks. So there should be something for uh, everyone. A lot of ex- exhibitions for uh, companies uh, that use Linux and stuff. So I'm kind of sneaking around a bit and hold up the BSD flag. And then in March, uh, that's uh, fairly close to each other. Uh, two weeks later, I will be at Easter Hack, Easter Hack, the CCC event uh, around uh, Easter. So it's it's a pun on Easter egg, put an H in there, and it's Easter hack, right? 
And there we'll be giving a two tutorials actually. The ZFS to yeah, the ZFS tutorial uh, for people who have never used ZFS before. We do an introductory part workshop there, and also one for a FreeBSD installation workshop. Like, hey, here's a installation we walk through, and these are the config files that are important. This is the package system. Uh, welcome to the new world. Uh, they declined the Vim tutorial that I will be presenting at the Chemnitz Linux days because they probably didn't want me to give three workshops, into, <laughs> but that's fine. And so I was, I'm looking forward to that one. This one, this is four days and not just uh, geeks on computers, but also, you know, general computing, uh, juggling, anything that you could imagine. This is a CCC event that has always a very interesting audience and uh, topics. And then in April, which is the week after, I will be in Graz, Austria. Oh, that's where uh, I will be traveling as well. So Graz, Austria, There's that's a one-day Linux event um, where there's a primary uh, thing on the Saturday where they give talks and stuff. And on the Friday before, there is the workshops. And that's where I'll be doing the Vim thing again. So uh, it was the choice between doing another FreeBSD workshop and uh, the Vim thing. And then they decided, yeah, I guess it, the Vim thing will probably draw more audience than the FreeBSD thing. Their choice, I'm fine. Uh, and I will be meeting a bunch of FreeBSD folks there who have been former committers. So that's nice to resynchronize what they've been doing. But that's all for. Uh, my thing. So if you want to meet up, let me know. Uh, we have a Telegram channel, t.me slash bsdnow, or send me an email, you will find me. Okay, enough self-promotion. Oh, well, <laughs> no, it's self-promotion is good. It's, uh, you know, you've got a fair, bit of, a fair bit of travel coming up. That's uh, quite impressive there, Benedict. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm very impressed. Uh, so, uh, yeah, if, you, if you're in the neighborhood, get out and see him. Yeah, um, right. I just probably want to touch also uh, on conferences. Uh, oh, yeah. The pap paper submissions are now closed for BSD CAN. So mm -hmm. the committee is now going through the papers and hopefully everybody that submitted the paper um, gets some great news if they've uh, become successful to present. So um, fingers crossed for those that have submitted. Did you submit, Benedict? Uh, no, I was actually thinking whether I should submit something uh, that I did in the past again, but yeah, I wasn't sure uh, whether I should do it. So being on the program committee, I will not spoil anything yet, but we have enough talks to fill a conference, that's for sure. And there's some interesting uh, stuff in there that people will or propose to present. And there's also uh, tutorials again. So we're just looking uh, to uh, decide who gets the nice message. As you said, like, the positive emails will come when we have decided on a schedule and a lineup of talks. Yep, I was. Uh, I will be also as BSD can. Uh, very nice at being a regular attendee and being at the Dev Summit, and uh, that's in end of uh, May. Yes, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I hear also their the website for EuroBSDCon is starting to appear and they will probably open the call for papers also soonish. I better get my uh, uh, content in some sort of order rather than chaos that's currently in so mm -hmm. I can submit my paper. Yeah. 
And so this is the uh, informational part before the headlines, which we have this week, of course, with the FreeBSD status report of the fourth quarter of 2023. And this is uh, covering the last quarter of 2023, obviously. And from the report, uh, the introductory bits read, as you have probably noticed, the status report comes later than usual and with fewer reports than the preceding uh, quarter. Indeed, please keep in mind that the last quarter of every year is for many members of the community the quarter of celebrations for Christmas and the New Year's, which implies that those members will spend more time with their families and will have less time for their favorite voluntary software projects. Uh, thus, there's less to report and reports tend to arrive later. But finally, here they are. And have a nice read, says Lorenzo, who uh, is on the status report team. Thanks, Lorenzo, and uh, your fellow team members who compiled and put this together. Table of contents, uh, brief overview. We have the team reports, core team, foundation, release engineering team, the cluster admin team. Then we have a report from the continuous integration team, the ports team, and also Buckmeisters. And okay, these are the teams. Then we have a report from Userland. The kernel is uh, in there. Architectures. There's a section about the cloud. You may have heard about this one. And then there is documentation and ports, as well as third-party projects. So, uh, of course, we cannot dive into each of these individually. So I will recommend you dive into the report uh, on your own in the bits that interest you. Um, we just pick a couple of things that may be uh, a little bit of a teaser to you actually uh, going into this. So, for example, we have uh, the core team report. Sorry, this is a bit of a short report. Uh, you probably uh, expected a bit uh, more information from core. We are currently, uh, you know, in the process of, you know, setting up the new uh, the voting system for the new core team. It's been a, it's still a bit time out until then. In, in March, there will be the, uh, not in March, in May, sorry, in May. Um, so we're trying to finish up some loose ends on our side. So uh, this is probably why we don't have much to report in this particular core report. Uh, yeah, so this is basically the uh, activities we did there. A new, new release engineering team, we helped a little bit get that to work or um, get uh, into shape. Uh, that's still going on and they are well uh, self-organized and we're having good discussions with them, how the release engineering should uh, be structured in the future. So that's um, ongoing. And then, of course, we have the FreeBSD Foundation status report. Uh, they have... Uh, listed as particular things of uh, 2023 in the last quarter, the OS improvements. So they did 236 source commit bit or commits, not bits. That would be awesome. <laughs> they did 236 source commits, like the people who are employed by the foundation. Then they also did 47 ports commits and 33 doc tree commits that have the FreeBSD Foundation sponsor tag. And they did uh, separate entries in the report a little later about OpenStack on FreeBSD, as well as the SIMD enhancements for AMD64. And they have three new contractors started. Uh, Cheng Kui, I hope that's proper pronunciation. Uh, so that, that be, who began working full-time on wireless networking. The main goal for Cheng's project is to assist Bjorn Zeep with 
802.11ac support in IWL Wi-Fi. That's a lot of people uh, <laughs> on their wish list. Uh, Tom Jones, you may have heard of this person on this show before. Uh, he began work to port on the vector packet processor or VPP to FreeBSD. Uh, what is VPP, you ask? V VPP is, it says here, an open source, high-performance user space networking stack that provides fast package processing suitable for software-defined networking and network function virtualization applications. Mental note, ask Tom next time he's on the recording panel here uh, about this a little bit. Yeah, I'd like to know. I'd like to know a bit more about that because I think it would be good for uh, people that are, uh, you know, part of an internet exchange instead of having to use expensive hardware routers from the uh, big vendors. Um, this uh, will enable switching across that fabric uh, a lot faster. So yeah, I'm, yeah, so I'm excited good. to see how this goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we will be having this support in FreeBSD one way or the other. And then we have Olivia Sertner, uh, joined also the FreeBSD Foundation as a general FreeBSD developer. And some of his contributions so far include reviewing, fixing, and hardening several security policies aimed at limiting process visibility and committing fixes in the login class code, as well as implementing a secure hardware fix for the ZenBleed issue affecting AMD Zen 2 processors. So that uh, gets a timely fix or has gotten one. Then they did some uh, listing of FreeBSD infrastructure they supported. They approved over $100,000 for a cluster refresh that began in late 2023 and will carry over into the new year by purchasing and shipping these servers and also racking them and making them work with all the in, uh, existing cluster administration uh, infrastructure and the team handing that over. Then they did a bunch of stuff in partnerships and research. So they connected people and organizations and companies together. Uh, and this is more detailed in the report itself. Uh, so we just skip over that. They did a lot of work, as always, in the advocacy, making the world know about FreeBSD and what is new and exciting about it. And so, for example, they did help and organize a sponsor the Vendor Summit at NetApp in San Jose in November 2023. That was also... Uh, streamed and people can find the presentations and the links that we uh, also did back then or on the uh, papers that FreeBSD org site and then they did introductions uh, of FreeBSD to new and returning folks at the All Things Open in North Carolina conference and they provided an overview of FreeBSD 14 security performance and interoperability that's a separate blog post and also did the FreeBSD community survey in collaboration with the core team as well as a development podcast uh, the evolution of the freebsd project that is a separate uh, activity there cool very nice fundraising uh thank you they say for everyone to who gave a financial contribution last quarter or in that last quarter of 2023 to help fund their work to support the project and uh please consider also doing a donation in 2024 then we have the FreeBSD release engineering team. As I said, they uh, got a new release engineer, Colin Percival, took over, and also a new release engineering, uh, you would say, deputy, or a, yeah, you would say, uh, deputy Mike Carrolls is also uh, uh, involved in that. He's currently writing the release notes and uh, doing a lot of other work behind the scenes that's probably not that visible, but definitely should be appreciated. Uh, for the work 
they are doing. So uh, they are currently building the new Stable 13 uh, release and uh, doing some, uh, I guess, finishing up work or prep work for a new 14.1 release. But that's still out there doing the 13 release first as also a kind of a, you know, see how everything works and uh, getting the team uh, you know, familiarized with uh, the whole process. Cluster administration team, they have uh, worked on the following. Regular support for FreeBSD or user accounts, regular disk and parts support for all physical hosts and mirrors. They enabled mirroring of uh, FreeBSD org's main website in the FreeBSD project managed mirrors. They did cluster refreshes, upgrading all hosts and jails to the most recent versions of 15 current, 14 stable, 13 stable, and 12 stable. So they are eating their own dog food, right? That's good. And if things are found there, they will, of course, make sure that this also gets fixed in the uh, upstream or in our own tree. Begins sunsetting 12 stable infrastructure as the branch approaches its end of life. That's what they also did. And... Uh, uh, Modirum uh, generously sponsored Philip Pep's time for most in October uh, to bring the package base into preview production in time for 14.0 release in November. So that is appreciated. Thanks for the sponsoring. And they also installed a new European mirror in Sjöbo, Sweden, and sponsored by Teleservice Scanny AB. Sorry. Uh, but thanks for uh, being a new mirror. That's good. Traffic in Europe is now directed roughly equally between the existing mirror in Frankfurt, and which is sponsored by Equinix, and the new mirror in Sweden. After well over 10 years in service, we plan to decommission our mirror site in the UK during the first quarter of 2024. And yeah, Bytemark Hosting was hosting that. So thanks for that uh, long uh, support of our mirror. And yeah, they list a couple of other things they did, all good things for the project, and people use their infrastructure. Uh, then we have continuous integration, the important completed task. Uh, they added a job to build AMD64 architectures with GCC 13 and added PowerPC 64LE, which is Little Endian, jobs config for stable 14 and updated the build environment of jobs uh, for main and stable 14 branches to 14.0 release, right? So that this also gets uh, regular CI jobs against this new version. Then they have some work in progress items, designing and implementing a pre-commit CI building and testing. So that is maybe applied in the future then, so that we have a, uh, they currently have the workflow working group supported. So this ties into the CI environment quite nicely so that people who submit a uh, pull requests get also automatically their submission checked using CI-CD. Uh, they also simplified the CI-CD test environment, setting up for contributors and developers. They also redesigned the hardware test lab and adding more hardware for testing, all good. And they merged a bunch of reviews that were uh, opened. And if any of uh, this sounds interesting to you, then reach out to freebsd-testing at or look at related tickets. They always look forward to uh, contributions in the CI area. I think they can still uh, do a lot of good things there. The ports collection or the ports management team, uh, they had uh, oh plenty of commits in the fourth quarter, 9,424 commits to the main branch in the 
ports repository and they welcomed two new committers uh, but also had to say goodbye to uh, four in total and uh, yeah, that's the normal flow and uh, the ebb and flow of uh, a project where people come and go so uh, they also invited new people to the port manager lurkers project which uh, are lurking for a while in ports management and then can become ports management uh, members themselves and so that cycles new people in and some people on the team can cycle out this way so i think that's a nice way of refreshing uh, minds and people in that team they also listed a bunch of things in the infrastructure side. So packages for 14.0 release were built. Bootrear was updated to release dash 3.4. And support for 3bsd12.x was removed. And a bunch of updates to ports versions that uh, got newer versions uh, from upstream. Very good. Also appreciated their work and coordinating this team with so many contributors and maintainers is uh, quite challenging sometimes. So Buckmeister, everything that is Buckzilla related or uh, hey, I found something that's not working correctly or out of the ordinary. And they um, updated the wiki documentation on the Buckzilla for a couple of uh, things that have been substantially reworked like the search queries or uh, the Buckmeister QA has also been updated. So check out those pages uh, for maybe something that you could take over or help Buckmeister a little bit, that's certainly uh, appreciated. The overall number of PRs remain around 11,400. So these are the numbers. So uh, if you have a bug, then by all means let us know. And if you have a solution for a bug, then by all means uh, provide that in the uh, you know PR. Then userland. Service jails, this is a new thing, but definitely exciting and good to have. So what are service jails? So Alexander Leidinger has been working on that, uh, netchild at freebsd.org. So Alexander has created uh, service jails. They extend the RC system to allow automatic jailing of rc.d services. So a service jail inherits the file system of the parent host or jail, but uses all other limits of the jail, like process visibility, restricted network access, file system mounting permissions, and so on. Additionally, configuration allows inheritance of the IPs of the parent system 5 IPC, memory page locking, and use of the Beehive virtual machine monitor, right? And so uh, he provides a small example using Unbound. Uh, the note here is that all base system services are covered in the patches with either name underscore SVCJ for service jail underscore options or a hard-coded Disabling of the service jails feature where it does not make sense, uh, like pure services which change the runtime configuration, do not start daemons, or where things are run, which cannot be run in a sensible way inside a jail. And so uh, while this does not have the same security benefits as a manual jail setup with a separate file system in IP slash VNet, it is much easier to set up while providing some of the security benefits of a jail, like hiding other processes of the same user. And uh, not all services were tested yet, but all services are covered with a config and any testing and feedback is welcome. So definitely look that up and see if that is uh, another layer of security that you can use for your services. 
Then we have in the kernel space PackRat. What is PackRat? It's an NFS client caching on non-volatile storage. So that is uh, Rick Macklem's work, or the contact is what he put up his name for. And uh, so NFS v4.1 and 4.2 provide support for a feature called delegations. When a uh, NFS4 client holds a delegation, the client has certain rights to a file, including a guarantee that no other client will make changes to the file unless the delegation is recalled. And as such, when a client holds delegation for a file, it can aggressively cache the file's data, knowing that it will not be modified by other clients until it returns the delegation. And so uh, where's the pack rat part here? Ah, okay, so he, he writes, uh, he has code running fairly well and hope to have a patch ready for others to test this winter and early testing shows promise. And uh, he provides some, uh, you know, statistics with PackRat and without PackRat in a uh, NFS, uh, you know, lookups, reads, writes, all these things. So it looks like without PackRat, it takes a bit longer than with PackRat to complete these operations. The Packrat case uh, cases ran a little faster and with fewer RPCs, so a little less traffic back and forth. Although this test was run on his little LAN, it's hoped that uh, an NFS v4 mounts over a WAN wired a wide area network would show a larger difference in performance. So that would be good to have if you have a lot of NFS mounts or NFS mounts over a wide range network. Architectures, uh, RMB7 ports quality assurance is ramping up they have a bunch of things listed there that uh, could be improved or have been improved and if you are a user of FreeBSD ports collection on rmv7 do not hesitate to file a bug report so that they know about these issues then we have a big thing simd enhancements for amd64 this is robert klausecker's work fuz at freebsd.org the project is to enhance the libc with simd's implementations so that is uh, CPU extensions uh, of string functions for AMD64 that has now concluded. In total, SIMD implementations for 17 libc functions have been written, complemented by scalar implementations where needed. Uh, through this rewrite, performance of these functions on strings with an average length of 64 characters was improved by an average factor of 5.54. Wow. In addition, nine other library functions were rewritten to call into the SIMD enhanced routines, conveying benefits without requiring additional assembly implementations. Please see the FreeBSD Foundation blog post that is linked also here uh, for more details, and they have some graphs to show what the you know improvements were. So this is nice, good work, and I guess this will benefit everyone who's just string who's using strings everywhere because they're everywhere in the operating system. And so yeah, the cloud has improvements on OpenStack on FreeBSD, FreeBSD on Microsoft Hyper-V and Azure also got updates. EC2, uh, FreeBSD on EC2, that is Colin Percival's work. And uh, this also got a bunch of new things, uh, especially for 14.0 release. Okay, very nice. Uh, anything that I missed? I guess this is enough for people to whet their appetite. And then we leave you with this and can probably dive into the report for individual items you find interesting. The next report up is a veil to uh, Dr. David L. Mills. It's an article over on ARCS Technica. Uh, David L. Mills, um, if you don't know, is the inventor of the NTP time protocol uh he's 
you know, you know, one of the pillars of the internet, you know, uh, Vince Surf. So, you know, th- this was announced by Vince Surf uh, before we go into the article uh, that um, he, he, uh, Dr. Mills has passed away. Uh, NTP is one of those foundation pillars that we rely on every day to keep uh, all our machines in sync across, you know, a vast array of networks. And um, it's, a, it's a real shame, you know, a lot of these inventors are getting old and um you know as as you know time is not friendly to us all uh it's a it's a shame to uh you know see these uh inventors sort of you know coming to to their end you know and it's and it's a bit sad because you know they've got a lot of stories to tell and unfortunately a lot of it doesn't get documented down in books and things like that um so it's real shame but back to the article on thursday Internet pioneer Vince Cerf announced that Dr. David L. Mills, the inventor of the NTP protocol, died peacefully at the age of 85 on January 17, 2024. The announcement came in a post on the Internet Society mailing list after the Cerf informed of David's death by Mills' daughter, Lee. He was such an iconic element of the early Internet, wrote Cerf. Dr. Mills created the Network Time Protocol, NTP, in 1985 to address a crucial challenge in the online world, the synchronization of time across different computing systems and networks. In a digital age environment where computers and servers are located all over the world, each with its own internal clock, there's a significant need for a standardized and accurate timekeeping. NTP provides the solution by allowing clocks of computers over a network to synchronize to a common time source. This synchronization is vital for everything from data integrity to network security. For example, NTP keeps network financial transaction timestamps accurate and ensures accurate and synchronized timestamps for logging and monitoring network activities. In the 1970s, during his tenure at ComSat and involvement with ARPANET, the precursor to the internet, Mills first identified the need for synchronized time across computer networks. His solution aligned computers to within tens of milliseconds. NTP now operates on billions of devices worldwide, coordinating time across every continent and has become a cornerstone of modern digital infrastructure. As detailed in an excellent 2022 New Yorker profile by Nate Hopper, Mills faced significant challenges in maintaining and evolving the protocol, especially as the internet grew in scale and complexity. His work highlighted the often underappreciated role of key open source software developers, a topic uh, explored quite well in a 2020 XKCD comic. Mills was born with glaucoma and lost his sight, eventually becoming completely blind. Due to difficulties with his sight, Mills turned over control of the protocol to Harlan Stein in the 2000s. Aside from his work on NTP, Mills also invented the first fuzzball router for NSFNet, one of the first modern routers based on the DEC PDP-11 computer, created one of the first implementations of FTP, inspired the creation of Ping, and played a key role in Internet Architecture as the first chairman of the Internet Architecture Task Force. Mills was widely recognised for his work becoming a fellow of the Association of Computer Machinery in 1999 
and the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers in 2002, as well as receiving the IEEE Internet Award in 2013 for contributions to network protocols and timekeeping in the development of the internet. Mills received his PhD in Computer and Communication Sciences from the University of Michigan in 1971. At the time of his death, Mills was an emeritus professor at the University of Delaware, having retired in 2008 after teaching there for 22 years. Wow, yeah, great work. Yeah, there's a lot of work that he's, he's done there. And I think, you know, a lot of these um, scaffolding engineers are underappreciated, but um, they are certainly appreciated by their peers. So um, they are Mr. Mills. Hmm. The News Roundup has also something interesting because here they say how to migrate a FreeBSD Beehive virtual machine to OmniOS. Yeah, um, so this one came came across uh, Mastodon. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, uh, that's where a few of us hang out these days. Uh, <laughs> I still haven't made this change, but uh, okay. <laughs> you're missing out. Yeah. You're missing out. You don't, you don't get fed the algorithm, you just get fed the real stuff. But, <laughs> okay. Yeah, so um, I have a home lab. Uh, this is uh, uh, from a blog that we we cover quite frequently, um, tumfatig.net. Uh, it's, it's, it starts off with, I have a home lab running FreeBSD, Beehive, Hypervisor, and a Colo server running on the OS. From time to time, I migrate some VMs from one to the other. It's very simple when using ZFS and a shared, sharing a compatible Beehive implementation. So first off, create a new VM. Check the source, FreeBSD, virtual machine sizing parameters. So uh, VM info and then the the name of the hypervisor. So that's just a, a list that VMB Hive gives out so you can identify how much you need to uh, allocate on your OmniOS machine. Uh, then create a destination on the on the OS machine, virtual machine accordingly. So um, using the ZADM command, uh, these are commands that are uh, native inside OpenSolaris, so uh, uh, appear in OmniOS as well. Uh, I'm not going to go into you know all the text that's actually that makes up the configuration file here. Um, I'll let you review the show notes so you can see yourself. Uh, CPU and RAM configurations don't have too much but those values are okay for me, so I'll keep using them. This size should be the same to avoid weird things happening, especially if the new disk is smaller than the original. Transfer the VM disk's uh, volume to avoid the unexpected data corruption. The original VM is stopped before any data is transferred. To limit the downtime on the source VM, I create a snapshot of the stopped VM disk and restart it. Now the service is up and running, I have no hurry to transfer the data. This is also to prevent stress mistakes. On the OmniOS server, the data set hosting the VMs is encrypted. On FreeBSD, it is not. I tried to use the ZFS to send the unencrypted volume to a data set and the following error arises. And the error reads, cannot receive the new file system. ZFS receive dash capital F cannot be used to destroy an encrypted file system or overwrite an unencrypted one with an encrypted one. 
I simply deleted to destination ZFS volume and sent the source one using the appropriate name. And then he's got the ZFS destroy and then ZFS send and then it appears. Then start the migrated VM. The network configuration is a bit different on the destination host. So I started the VM attaching the console to be able to boot into single user mode, apply the proper network and local time modifications, then proceed the normal boot. And he's got uh, ZADM start minus C and then his VM name. And that particular VM is running OpenBSD, but this should war with any Beehive compatible, I think uh, that should say work uh, it's just missing the K there, uh, with any Beehive compatible decent OS. The VM is now running in its new home. That's all, folks. Mm. Very good. And the next item lets us know that this blog is AI-free and by none other than Celine. She lets us know that she will not use AI with her blog, but let's start at the beginning. Uh, the introduction reads, Hi, this is a short informative blog post about artificial intelligence. You may have heard about it in the news recently, right? Um, she writes, I got uh, approached by a company who wants to help me to add some generative AI to my blog workflow to, quote, boost the quality, unquote, of my content. I like generative AI and I think it's an interesting tool, but I have just no interest using it for my blog. So she makes the statement here, this blog content is made by a human. We need some kind of label, quote, not AI powered, unquote. So yeah, with a smiley, I just add something like that on my template. There is one exception as I wrote one blog post about machine learning and obviously the picture in there was generated or colored by a program to demonstrate the tools. Yeah, that's different, but not the content is written itself. So why no AI, she writes. I have no incentive adding an AI in the process of writing. I do mistakes. I may make poor sentences and I have my own style for the best of the worst. I think throwing an AI to it, this would make the result bland. Huh. For a pretty similar reason, I keep my custom website generator and template instead of using a program like Hugo with an awesome template because I need to have this authentic feeling for my blog. This blog is my own space. It represents who I am. That's just right. I totally support this and I like that. Yeah, Listen, I think yeah. there's too much uh, emphasis on the AI everything. And, you know, as humans, uh, we won't have our creative outlet and we need to have a creative outlet, um, you know, as, as all sorts of things, uh, you know, for mental health and that sort of thing. And, you know, what's wrong with us being humans and making content is like we don't need to have a machine we we're doing it quite well i mean you know do we have to keep spitting out you know huge amounts of of absolutely you know just garbage constantly just to you know keep keep you know page clicks or whatever sort of thing coming in i don't think so i think you know it's about quality and the thinking process that goes into uh the creative skill of writing um, I think Michael Lucas probably would have a bit more of a... Yeah, he, yeah. he has his own stance on the AI and it's not a positive one. No. So maybe maybe we should get him on for an interview to uh, discuss yeah. uh, the, the whole <laughs> AI and writing uh, situation at the moment. So, and, uh, yeah, this is good to have and we will have authenticity on the uh, side of humanity here. Next thing is hard 
disk LEDs and noisy machines. Yeah, this is over on Blog System 5. Uh, a little annoyance that alerted us developers of performance problems. The computers of yesteryear had a little feature known as a blinking LED lights. They also had other features called noisy disks and loud fans. Oh wait, features? Why features are not annoyances? You see the bright lights and the loud noises acted as canaries in a performance mine. They gave developers a chance to notice when things were off performance-wise. If your code abused the CPU or the hard disk by mistake, you could tell right away. Nowadays, developer machines tend to be quiet under heavy load, and the vast majority of laptops don't even have lights anymore. The obvious examples are Macs. They haven't had hard disk LEDs for a really long time, and since the M1, they are silent and cold too. These characteristics are nice from a usability perspective. Unfortunately, as a developer, you know, sorry, you now need to first imagine that something is wrong before deciding to look for a problem. If your thought never crossed your mind, then you may never know you need to look. Let's give you a few examples of the kinds of inefficiencies that I'm talking about. These would have been trivially noticed by the presence of indicators. These are all based on real-world situations I faced at some point in the recent past. In a project I worked on, our development build started writing about 80 megabytes of log messages per second to a disk. No matter how you looked at it, that's a lot of disk traffic, and yet the problematic code passed code review and was merged into the main branch. The only indication that something was wrong was when other developers came asking for help because their local disk space was running out faster than usual. There was no other symptom behind the problem. You'd hope that this inefficiency would have been caught while qualifying the new release for production because, in theory, such logging waste would translate in an increase in CPU consumption or network bandwidth. But I'm not so sure that the issue would have been noticed. In another project I worked on, I noticed that Bazel took an incredibly long time to complete some track, uh, some actions. It wasn't until I looked into detail that I saw it stuck in a loop fetching the same remote artifact over and over again due to connect, connection resets. The build completed successfully after many minutes once Bazel gave up on the downloads and fell back to local execution. There was no reason to suspect that something was wrong other than these actions are just huge. In reality, though, there was a bug somewhere. Just today, I was in a video call and I noticed that my laptop was reading 100 megabytes per second from disk nonstop. I concluded that meeting, but the disk reads didn't stop. A quick peek at top showed something called wallpaper video extension that seemed to have gone rogue. This background process was consuming one full CPU, but such load wasn't enough to make the system feel slower or noisier. I suppose I would have eventually noticed that the battery was running out quicker than usual, but maybe not. Killing the process made the problem go away, and the constant reads stopped. Looking online, I found other instances of wallpaper video extension consuming lots of CPU and memory, so this seems to be a bug. But if it's common, why wasn't it noticed in the first place? In any case, this last scenario gives you a hint as to where I'm going. How did I even notice that this last problem? After all, my M1 Mac is working just fine. 
It was just slightly warmer than usual, but there was no loud fan noise or, or lights to tell me about this activity. Answer is simple. I have an omnipresent performance monitor in my screen that shows CPU load, memory pressure, disk I.O. throughput, and network traffic. This monitor is always visible, taking little space in the menu bar or the task bar. Every time I sense that something is tiny, tiny bit off, I glance at the monitor. You cannot imagine how many times I've gone, ah, that's interesting, by seeing unexpected activity and then went to discover big performance problems somewhere in the system. My recommendation is that you stop what you are doing and go and install such a performance monitor right now. I'd even argue that having one always visible should be a hard requirement for any development machine and corporate IT departments should pre-install one. Personally, I'm a fan of iStat menus for Mac OS. I've been using it for years. But if Mac OS is not your thing, you can find similar tools for other platforms like System Monitor Next for GNOME. Unfortunately, these monitors only help if you develop on your local machine, a workflow that is becoming increasingly rare. If instead you SSH into a remote virtual machine to do your development or use VS Code remote features, you'll need a different answer. This is a situation I face right now. The modern ThinkStation I have in the garage is well equipped with useful lights, but I only access it over SSH for development, so those lights and its disk noises are kind of useless from where I sit. And I'm not sure what the right answer is here. You've been around for a while, you may remember GK Realm, which was an avid user of. This system monitor had the ability to display remote machine activities, and I'd love to have that again. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Good old it's times. A, yeah, it's a common thing, you know. It's on on my Windows workstation here. I I tend to have uh, system monitor up uh, quite frequently because you know you get overruns by Teams or WebEx or whatever. And um, you've got to work out what thing is just absolutely killing the machine. You know, as, as CPUs get older, you do notice performance regressions. So um, you know, all, the, all the latest developers seem to think that everybody has the latest CPU on hand and that sort of stuff. But uh, you yeah. know, there is people that are running, you know, 10-year-old CPUs quite fine. <laughs> and it's also a little bit of a, a relief looking at these graphs and seeing, ah, everything's fine. <laughs> hopefully most of the time then uh, we have something uh, of an ssh based comment system so you may say what is this and it's certainly interesting in the way it's implemented so uh, blog.hashek.at writes this blog is now 11 years old and i've been thinking about a comment system for some time i don't want to use discus or any other third-party comment system because i don't want to give away my visitors data and i don't want to have any external dependencies so usually my posts are discussed on reddit or hacker news so there wasn't really a need for a comment system at all but i had an idea in the back of my head since 2015 ssh as an authentication system for the web in 2015, I read an article in the Hacker News discussion, this linked there as well, that was using SSH as a sort of two-factor authentication for websites that where you needed to SSH into a server, which gave you a link with a token that allowed you to sign into the site. I wondered if I could make a comment system for this blog using SSH. So how does it work as a comment system? The idea is simple. 
you give users a SSH server to connect to, which presents them with a simple UI, which then stores the comment in a database and displays it on the block. In the current implementation, you don't need to register your SSH key as I'm using a heavily modified OpenSSH server where every available username corresponds to a blog post. Ah, so you can comment on this post using SSH, SSH comments at ssh.blog.ashek.8k, where you will be greeted with a message and asked to choose a name and write a comment. The SSH server is running a program instead of a shell, so for every connection, an instance of the block shell is run and presented to the user. When this block shell exits, the connection is closed automatically. And so the question comes, how does it know where to add the comment? The SSH server automatically creates a user for every post on this block. Each post has a unique identifier, which I can use for this, like, for example, this post unique identifier is called SSH comments. So the comment section in the end of each post gives you the correct command to comment on each post. And then you ask, is using SSH protecting against spam? Probably not since every bot could also post by post by SSH, right? So everyone who hosts an SSH server on the web knows how many automated attacks happen every day. I obviously did implement a few safety measures based on the IP of users, though. That said, it's probably an extra step from your browser to a terminal and logging into the server that might filter out low effort comments, but we'll see if that's true. And where to go from here? This way of writing comments to websites is currently only a novelty and a fun hack. I may have, uh, or I have many ideas for furthering or improving this, uh, like commenting on other comments and registering SSH keys for consistent identity across posts and editing on existing comments. I will publish the blueprints or source for the Docker container shortly and will update this post. So interesting that this is uh, what people can also do. I hope he uh, provides the source for the actual SSH daemon in general because I hate how everything's being wrapped up in the Docker these days because it's not uniform. It might be applicable to Linux, but you know, source code was traditionally available to everyone uh, to be able to then compile on their system of choice. So please stop doing Docker containers. Yeah. Just release the source. Yeah, it's easier to adapt to other systems this way and that makes your thing that you've written also more available to other users and you never know where your contributions or fixes may come from i mean i don't have an issue with docker and you know release the docker source besides the original source but you know don't uh don't expect everybody to go and then pull apart dockers and then rebuild the source that way that's just too convoluted just leave the source and then have your docker image happy days and the final uh, item here for today's episode is a congratulations to the NetBSD. Um, they've released their RC4, which is their last or possibly their last release candidate prior to releasing 10.0. So all you NetBSD fans out there, there's going to be some, you know, some exciting times coming around the corner for you. So the post goes, the NetBSD project is pleased to announce the fourth and probably last release candidate of the upcoming 10.0 release. Please help testing. See the release notes or the release announcements for details. The NetBSD 10 release branch is more than a year old now, so it's high time that the 10.0 release makes it to the front stage. This matches the long time it took for the development branch to get ready for branching. A lot of development went into this new release. This also caused the release announcement of one of the longest we ever did. 
Since RC1, there have been numerous changes, including major updates to external software included in the release, like PostFix, OpenSSH, and firmware used for the Raspberry Pi devices. Various issues with RC1 have been fixed, including the installer, which is this install because of the crashes. Lots of architectural specific fixes happened. Uh, for example, various toolchain changes for VAX. Uh, so it's now finally self-hosting again and kernel changes for the Mac PPC, Netwinder and Alpha. For RC3, only a few relatively minor changes were made, including HTTPS certificates verification in libfetch, which is used by package add, and also improvements in the EFI bootloader to better deal with booting from CD or in virtual machine ISOs images, plus lots of various bug fixes. RC4 became necessary as a few or as very few important DRM KMS issues, especially for Intel GPUs, have been resolved. And as an unexpected bonus, support for Nintendo Wii has been added to the EVPPC port. Especially on the AMD64 machine, please note that we got a new DRM KMS subsystem version, and this may lead to fallout on some hardware. Unfortunately, not all known bugs from the release engineering and pre-release task list could be fixed in time for this release. We will continue to improve the current state and hope to have more of them solved before the next release in 10.1. If you want to test the 10.0 RC4, please check the installation notes for your architecture and download the preferred installed image from the CDN or if you are using ARM-based devices from Net 10. NetBSD 10 builds from the bootable ARM images page. If you're having any issues with the installation or run into issues with the system during the use, please contact us on one of the mailing lists or file a problem report. All right. Yeah, and if it becomes final release, then we'll definitely mention it as this is something to celebrate, right? Is it then called NetBSD X or something? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, you know... <laughs> X is used by other organizations. Ah, yes, I remember that other yeah. niche operating system. Yes, uh, and certain social media <laughs> places. <laughs> that, oh, that too, yeah. <laughs> I was totally not thinking about that. <laughs> uh, I think X is being overused these days. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, let too net, much net, X. Let NetBSD stay at 10.0. Yeah, good. let NetBSD what it is, and... Uh, it's definitely on the right track to getting a great release. And um, we look forward to, yeah, having the final release to uh, try out. Or maybe uh, other people have, you know, providing their experience from an installation in a future episode. And so we'll have some more NetBSD content this way. Uh, no news or, or feedback and questions from uh, uh, people that we could cover here definitely reach out if anything uh, you think is missing or that you have maybe written yourself on your own blog about bsds uh, or you have found a sp particular story or a topic that you always wanted to, or a question of course this is uh, exactly the section for you feedback at bsdnow.tv is the address where you sent this to and then it will appear in a future episode bsd now is sponsored by tarsnap Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated 
so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. And I think that's it for today. Thanks for listening as always and till next time. Catch you later.